Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Hide or Practice. Very exciting. We have Sarah Merquette from Merck & Co., an art world recruiter, which is so amazing. Uh, Sarah, will you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do, your business, like how you got into it? Like, it's just, it's so awesome. And it's not, so like recruiters, if, in case anybody's from coming from a different, you know, background or not creative, it's pretty common, but in the art world, it's not. No, it's not. There's only a few of us out there um, in the world, but it's um, what I do is I help art world businesses to find staff. And there's a lot of words for the people use for that, like headhunter um, or recruiting or staffing, you know, but I really like to think of myself as a matchmaker. I love that. That's what it really is. You know, you really have to kind of listen to both sides about what it is that they need and do and want. And it goes well beyond the requirements of the job. And it's really about things like soft skills and culture fit. So there's a lot of um, things that need to get thought about and um, matched beyond just the hard skills for a job. How did you get into that? I have a 20-year uh, career in the art world. Uh, started, I moved to New York City in 1998 and started working for galleries. And um, I like to say that I've done just about everything in the art world except for work at an auction house or be an artist. So um, I think that that really gives me an uh, interesting perspective on the art world. Um, you know, my, my LinkedIn uh, account manager told me that most people say that they have a niche recruiting business. And she's like, no, you actually have a niche <laughs> recruiting business. But what I think is even weirder about having a niche recruiting business in the art world is that it's so, what I do is so broad. It's not like there are people who just focus on, in other industries that just focus on like finding financial advisors or doctors of a certain type, just a type, right? I have to know about galleries and auction houses and law firms and artist studios and foundations and publications and art fairs. And then I have to know all the positions within those, within those separate businesses. So, um, you know, everything from the ops person to the finance person to the, you know, programming person, the curators, salespeople, that sort of thing. So while it's niche, it's also really broad. So I think that my particular background, having worked for art advisors, art shipping and handling companies, not-for-profits, artists, um, really publications, art fairs, it really gives me a, a particular insight into the business. Um, I've worked for an online uh, site that sold work. I've worked for a secondary market dealer where I ran a gallery on the Upper East Side. So, um, and in all of those positions for like the last 10 or 15 years, I've been in director roles where um, 
I have ended up needing to manage and hire people. And I was wanting to get out of the sales side of the business and meditated for about two years. And I woke up one day and said that I wanted to be a recruiter. And I told one person and they told me who to talk to. And I, I've been doing it ever since for three years now, just over three years. So do you see like a connecting thread because you're meeting so many people and you're matching so many things. So is there some sort of a connecting thread that gets A to B? Do you see any like connecting things that like tie one person to the company that you're looking for? Is it, are you thinking of, is it only about experience? Is it only about transferable skills? Is it only about like, is there something that makes the candidate a winner? I mean, I think that there really are those kinds of three buckets that you're talking about. I mean, there's hard skills, there's the values fit, culture fit kind of like question. And, you know, then there's things like personality. I mean, I think that it's really weird that in the art world that these are such small businesses where you're talking about teams of like two to 12 and you're working with each other with the same people every day so that that kind of personality fit of what it is that that person's bringing into the office as energy every day is going to really matter. Um, I have worked on things where I've had absolutely no idea about the role, let alone any candidates for it when I've started and um, have had to get to know my candidate, my the businesses that I'm working for as well as those candidates in order to be able to make those matches. But I've also had situations where I'm talking to a client and I know exactly who they need. And, I, and it's so exciting. I call it a one and done. Where like I'm sitting there and I'm like, hey, I'm going to call this person as soon as I get out of this meeting. And uh, that's happened about two or three times now. And, it, and it's super satisfying when it does. They usually do need to meet about four or five other candidates for them to be convinced of the person that's fair. Uh, I think it's really interesting when you're talking about it's because it is such a broad, we've been talking about this. There's so much in the art world that people don't understand that goes into it. Like our little, yes, it's a niche economy, but it's so widespread of like, you know, the handlers and the fabricators and the designers and the, you know, admin and everything that goes on to it. But also what you're saying is that so many of these teams are so small. And when you have these small teams at like gallery A and gallery B, you're talking about two different four person teams, but the culture at each of those are going to be so wildly different based on who's the director and who's the gallery assistant, and who's the art handler. So that say you fit in what really wonderful at gallery A and then you go to another gallery, you know, to, for a different job, it's going to be such a different experience. And I think that that, culturally those those shifts are way different than I think that we get than in other industries. Yes, I would agree. I mean it's just not that those personalities are so much more at the forefront of an art world job than I think in other industries for sure. And so it's hard to separate that out from the search sometimes. Cause yeah, because even I feel like there's, you know, times it's like, oh, I would totally fit. Like I qualify for that job. And then it's like, oh, that wouldn't be, you know, personality fit or it would be a good one. But it's 
and it's just so interesting because these so many teams are really really small um but, but you're so, also just talking about like not just the smallness of the team but you're talking about like so last year, this is a great example. I mean, I, at one point I had three gallery director positions that I was looking for and three registrar positions that I was looking for. And for each of those jobs, who they were looking for was completely different for each of those faces. I had completely different candidate pools for them. I mean, so it goes beyond just the personality. It also goes to like one of the galleries had an Asian art, um, you know, focus and so we're really so that really skewed the candidates in one way some galleries are secondary markets some are more primary markets some are more commercial and so the needs in terms of who has that kind of specific experience really varies dramatically given you know just those those different lenses so that's interesting too because then for instance so yeah, it's director, 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 registrar, registrar, registrar. But just because you've been a registrar at one place doesn't necessarily mean you're going to fit at the next registrar position. And it's not even about your skills. It could be about just the fit of the company or what they're, it is more secondary market. It is a specific kind of. Well, focus. for the registrar positions, it's interesting because you would think that it would be um, about because it's about move, registrars actually, I mean, for everybody, I hope everybody knows what a registrar does. They move artwork around the world, really, to get it where it needs to go logistically. Um, sometimes you might work for a small gallery and that just means going down the street to pick up the artwork from an artist studio and carry it to the gallery. You know, it could be, you know, that you work for a museum and you are working three years on a project where there are a hundred pieces coming from 30 different countries and it takes you that long to actually secure all of those loans and get all of that work to a certain place, right? So those are very different spectrums. And I think that, you know, what, what I found with the registrar positions is that if you work for a museum, then you're not going to be working at the pace of a gallery. And if you're working for a gallery, then you might not have what it is the, the skills, the rounded skill set that an art advisor is looking for. And that's what happened with those registrar positions is that, you know, you're talking about three or four different sectors of the art world that were looking for registrars. And so their needs were very different. Like if you're working for a gallery, you probably need to have art handling skills. And a lot of registrars don't have those. So, I mean, that's just one specific example of like, you know, a skill that you might need um, for one registrar position that you wouldn't necessarily need for another. So can we talk about professionalism? For sure. That wasn't even like... No? <laughs> Erica's so mad. No. I, well, I want to talk about it. Well, because we're talking about the jobs. We're talking about like, but like coming into them and what it is to apply. I think that it's important to talk about and we wanted to talk about it. But also, I don't know. I'm not a journalist. I'm just. I guess I want to know. So, what's like the definite? I have a specific definition of what I think professionalism is. I think that Alexis probably has a different sure. shade of what professionalism means. I think it's so like subjective. So, as a recruiter, I would love to know what defines professionalism in our very horizontal industry. 
Well, I spent some time yesterday looking at what professionalism means as a definition myself, just because I didn't want to be wrong or I kind of wanted to know what different places define professionalism as. Um, I like to know those sorts of things because you just you have your own idea of what something is and then, you know, like you said, some, what somebody else thinks is different. So professionalism seems to actually really at its base, sit within something that I call, what I like to actually call soft skills in some sort of way. So it's really the attitude, the, um, the way that people behave in a, in a professional setting. Um, it's things like showing up on time, dressing correctly, um, you know, how you interact with other people. Um, and it really seems like it's an unwritten code that some people do better than others in terms of how everybody can work together and efficiently to get things done. Where things like um, personal things that you should be leaving at home don't get in the way, you know? Do you think that that can be like a learned skill? Like if you were in the beginning of like, you kind of, it helps like where you've been and you know, yes, we have like school is an example and stuff, but like more that you work in different kinds of environments that you could learn to be more professional or less professional even. I think that anybody can learn anything. I love that. You know, but it's about really there's a self-awareness there that then has to happen. I mean, that there's a depersonalization, I think, that has to happen. I mean, in terms of understanding, like, this isn't about me necessarily, like the criticism that I'm getting, the constructive criticism I'm getting about my behavior isn't about me. So there has to be a kind of distancing, you know, there to be open to those kinds of things to change your behavior in the future. But yeah, anybody can get better at being more professional. So do you think that professionalism changes depending on when you're switching a role? So if you're talking about like matching culture and if a registrar is looking for another position in the same sector, do you think that that professionalism translates or do you have to start over again? No, I think that professionalism is something that's additive. I mean, like that, it, that it's something that can be learned over a career and transferred to another job, um, for sure. Uh, it's, it's something that belongs to the person. I think it's, I mean. no, I think it's interesting because it's, it's definitely one of those things that you, it's easy to get lax in the creative industries for sure, uh, especially on like artist focused positions because it's all very friendly. Uh, but I think that, I, I think that this is a good point of like being like really aware, like you were talking about self-awareness, but it's also a really good thing to talk about, about awareness of your environment, because if you're coming in and yes, you want to have your best foot forward, but also like reading the room, like if everyone's being very professional and no one's wearing jeans, then, you know, clock that. And, or if everyone's wearing jeans then it's probably okay for you to wear jeans. It's important to be self-aware in regards to your professionalism. So you can see how you're, 
treating people because a lot of people, the only thing you can control really is your own behavior. Um, but it's also really important to read the room and like see, and you can learn that in when you're interviewing, seeing how people are acting. I guess we're doing it more remotely now, but you can still see, get an idea of people on Zoom and in phones. Um, and when you're in an office, in a studio, in a gallery, in a museum, you can kind of see how other people are acting and just awareness in general for yourself and outside is a really good way to kind of gauge professionalism, I would think. For sure. I mean, I think that what's interesting is, is that there are some people who these things come very naturally to and some people they don't. I mean, I've had to spend a lot of my career actually learning these things. I, I was not, I come from a family of people who speak their mind no matter what and are loud and feel like their opinions should be heard. And so, you know, I really needed to learn how to listen and work in groups and be nicer to people. Like, you know, I, I really thought that it was like that idea that if you do your job well, like, and you do it really well, that like, then you're doing a great job, right? It's not true. I mean, that's what this professionalism is about. Like right. all of these things that you actually like contribute to the success of your performance and the project. It's being yeah. well-rounded, isn't it? I think in a way. So insofar as it's you and the skills that you have being self-aware, being able to read the room. But I also think that there's an, there's like additional layer to that, which is being prepared, doing the research, making sure that you know what's going on. Like, I don't quite know whether that fits into self-awareness. I guess I could fit under self-awareness, but you know, like- I think it could. Yeah, but it's like showing up on time, actually responding to emails, using the right language, um, when someone asks you for your CV, actually having it and not getting back to somebody because you need to make it from scratch like three weeks later. I, I don't know if that would necessarily fall under um, self-awareness, but it's definitely being prepared and reading the room. Totally. hundred. All of those things are 100% about professionalism. And, but I mean, somebody who doesn't have their resume ready when they've never prepared a resume before, that actually happens to be their situation. Like, I don't think that that's, I mean, if you knew that you needed to have the resume ready at a certain point, you didn't have it ready, that's unprofessional. But if you actually are being asked to give a resume to somebody and you didn't know you needed it, then you really just need to start there, right? Like, I mean, there are things where it's like, you are just at that level or you're there in your career and that's where you are and you just need to actually make sure that you're then doing that thing in a good time and getting it to somebody right so that leads me to my question i feel like this is more i just want to blast this off to like anybody who listens to this and i want to tell everybody this all the time um I think that under professionalism and like self, well, maybe not self-awareness, but definitely professionalism is the following directions. People don't know how to do that. And I think that, and I don't know where this comes into, because sometimes I think it's hubris. Sometimes I think it's, I don't, you don't know any better. And I know that we've all talked about this with each other and I'm sure with other people that like, of course, if you don't know and no one's told you, there's no reason for you to know. And I understand that. 
But if someone's explicitly asking you, say like I'm, I'm posting a job or you're asking them, I need your CV, I need a cover letter and I need like, you know, a hundred words on why you love this auction house because I need to get this to, you know, the person I'm contacting there and they give you a CV and it's like, oh, now I know you can't follow directions. <laughs> and it's kind of like an entryway into like, am I going to want to work with this person? Like if you can't get me what, or if I need it by Friday, and if you don't communicate to me that there's a reason you can't get it to me by Friday. Um, so I think that's the thing. A lot of people don't understand that a lot of people are much more flexible. If it's like, oh, I cannot get it to you by this deadline because of X, Y, and Z, but I can get it to you the next day. And then a lot of people are pretty understanding. But if I ask you for three things and you give me one, then I immediately don't think that you can follow directions. Yes, that's a hundred percent true. And you get judged on that. Like, right. so, I mean, like I can't, like if you can't follow the directions that I'm asking you to do, then you're probably going to get eliminated from the. Cause it's a quick thing. And I, I, I feel like, especially like if you're coming into the, into the industry, like I know that I've, put up posts where it's like really specific, like I need everything in PDF format and I need these two things. And exactly the minute something comes in and it's not that, it's one less thing for me to look at. Um, and in case anyone's here from TikTok, from my TikTok, I did that call for artists and I asked specifically, will you please tag me in your videos and or do at this? And then people are asking me to do so many other things. And it's just like, this isn't what I asked. And I know it's casual and I know it's TikTok and it's not, you know, assistant director at LACMA, but I, you know, I, I asked for a reason because this is how it'd be easiest for me to see your art. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a bummer because then it's like, oh, you don't know how to follow directions. I don't know. Even if your art's great, maybe I'm not going to want to work with you because what's this going to lead to in the future? Obviously TikTok is a very like low key example of this, but but it also puts the administrative burden on right. the other person, which is really, you know, not cool. I mean, like it's not professional. I mean, so like you're, you were asked to actually participate in a relationship. You were told what it is that your side of that relationship was, and you chose not to pay attention, not to, as you were saying, read the room basically when it was actually spelled out for you actually. And so, yeah, I mean, like that is a big no-no, but it's your, so it's your own fault. Like if you don't right. get call back at that point for that. Okay. So That's then me. I, so if to clear this, what would you say is a good checklist of things that you should have prepared? For what? I don't know, like gen generally speaking, I don't think that we are in the capacity to have any like specifics, but like generally speaking, you should have these things ready. But as when a you're candidate, applying. when you're applying for a job? Yes. Well, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've given a lot of these talks this summer already. Um, and, you know, I guess that it's, it's more than, you have to have a resume ready. The resume should actually be um, tailored to the position as far as I'm concerned. Easy ways of doing that are actually looking at the job description and pulling out keywords from the job description and making sure that they're actually in your resume so that the hiring manager can see, oh, this person needs to do X, Y, and Z. Oh, look, they know how to do X, Y, and Z. 
I can't tell you how effective that is. It's so simple. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, resumes need to be short. They need to actually talk about accomplishments, not about responsibilities. So it's about what you did. That's interesting. Not, um, you know, what it is that your job description was that it's like, I introduced this system that led to what, whatever. I thought that we needed to actually like create a catalog raisonné for, for, uh, for an artist. And I did that for, for the gallery for the first time. And we did that, you know, what your sales were. Like it should be actually things that you did that contributed to the gallery or to the, sorry, to the business. Um, uh, we're, we're talking about galleries. But, um, and uh, you actually need to have your story ready. So where, where, what is your, where did your career start? What have you done? Why are you applying for this job? Where do you wanna go? How can you contribute to the bottom line of this company? To the, to the job? What is it that you're bringing to the table? Having that story ready, being able to actually talk about it. So I think that those two things when you're applying for jobs are actually probably the most important. Um, Gotta update my resume. I know, yeah. basically, there are just actions, <laughs> actions. I know, I'm like, I need to be verbs. Excuse me while I take some notes. I don't want to forget this. Um, I think also I was wondering, are people still doing references? Oh, it's an interesting question. I actually have to say that almost nobody does reference checks. If, if a client is working with me, we're doing reference Damn, guys. If yeah, Sarah calls yeah. you, get your fucking references <laughs> ready. Um, I've, cause I've always, I've always put them in. I've never called. Um, and I've always, when people have asked, no, nobody's ever called my references. Uh, and I'm always curious about that. Although no, actually a friend of mine, she had a reference called the other day. I love, for, oh no, someone did call me for a reference once and it was fantastic. It was like the best 20 minutes of my life. Cause when Stephanie will see who was on that pod the other day uh she had I was a reference for her and it was really great and they're like it sounds like you really like her and I was like I do and then I got worried that I was like being too enthusiastic but she really genuinely is that talented and that wonderful to work with and the academy museum recognized it so now she works there but anyway the, the, the people think that references are not good because people aren't really allowed to say very much in a reference check yeah, that's the there's a legal thing that people say is the reason why they don't do reference checks. But I have to say that basically a reference check for me is that I have determined I, I'm far along in the process. I basically want to probably bring this person onto the team. The reference checks are really to make sure that my opinion about the person is matching up to the opinion that other people have of that candidate that have worked with her or have managed that person before. So I go in with like, you know, questions about behaviors, um, questions about like, I have this opinion about this person or whatever, like, how do you, what do you think about that? And can you tell me? And if they actually falter and aren't 100% enthusiastic, then there's probably something going on there that you have to kind of like dig around. So I find them actually really useful. 
but it's, you know, I have scripts for all of these things, you know, that are like specific questions for getting people to kind of talk about um, things. So, so for the artists who, who are listening, I'm curious as a recruiter, how important is it to go and have your portfolio ready? And if it's important, this, sorry, this is a double barrel question. Um, what is, or mu what must be included within this portfolio? I don't, are you talking about to be considered for representation? Um, so if you're hiring, say like a hotel is looking for someone to go and paint a mural. So they're not necessarily re looking to represent you. They're looking to have some sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not patronage. Like a commission. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So in order for you to be considered, you need to have, you know, you need to have a sample of your work. So what would that consist of if I was to go and submit that to you because you're, you're recruiting for this hotel who is looking for someone? I don't, do, I, I mean, I've never, I don't know a recruiter that does that. Um, you know, generally speaking, I mean, cause those are creative. I mean, those are creatives. I mean, and there are people like even that would do illustrations and things like that for magazines or anything like you're talking about like, artists who get jobs for their artwork. I don't know recruiters who really get involved in those kinds of positions um, too much. I feel like that's a me thing. I feel like that's what I would do. Cause it's like, I'm looking for the, the mural or I'm looking for the pieces. And if it's that, I would like to see the closest work you have to what I'm asking for. Not necessarily in style wise, but like maybe size or scope um where it is how long it took budget if you have it um and it doesn't have to be the exact budget it doesn't have to be like one thousand two hundred and thirty dollars but like between one thousand and five thousand dollars this is a piece between 15 and 20 and then um and then some other pictures of your styles uh so even if you've only done one mural but you've done obviously like quite a few other paintings that are more in the style of what you talk to the art advisor with the call for like the request for qualifications said um I'd want to see the, yeah, the scope and then the different styles. And then we could kind of discuss from there. That's me. Well, there's um, a lot of people who work for like either those like art advisors, there's yeah. like artist representatives, like who then are usually representing the client who then work with the artists on those, on a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. And usually I would say, because I've always, I'm always on the hunt for RFQs for my artist friends and artists that I work with through softcore. Um, I, it's probably very akin to a resume. Like you kind of have your basics ready. Like these are like my five favorite projects, my five favorite paintings, my five favorite sculptures with like a little blurb that you've got about them and all the info. And then when you see the RFQ, you tailor it. You like use those like words. It's like, oh, we're looking for like a light installation specifically. Then like, you're like, okay, great. These are my two pieces that have like lights. And then I make sure that that's like highlighted in here because I used this kind of lighting technique, whatever. Um, but you want to have that, like all those kinds of things ready. So you can kind of tailor it to the RFQs because usually if you're working with someone 
if you see an RFQ or like you see that like this hotel wants a commission or this, you know, person, they're pretty specific about what their wants are. They usually be pretty vague on the money always. And then, um, no low volume always, but, uh, you kind of want to have that kind of basis ready, which is, again, is that like admin stuff that we've been talking about for the last two seasons is getting all of that stuff ready for your resume, for your having all of those things ready just to be able to adjust. And then later when it's, because I think, I don't know, Sarah, how you feel about this, but I feel like, you know, it's really, when you, when you see the job posting that you're excited about, it's kind of hard to be focused um it's very easy to kind of like skip things or mess up i've looked back at cover letters that i've written and then there's just words in there there's sentences not english not even close to english um and i know that the hiring director was real busy because they got back to me anyway um but the but it's so nice to have like if you have all of these things kind of laid out ahead of time and you know who like the three people you want to confirm for your references are and you've got all this kind of stuff and then you can really edit it like last minute it's it makes things easier so you're not starting from scratch when you have a friday deadline and you're really just like zhuzhing oh yeah i mean and, and i think that you know you should lean on your networks too i mean like ask somebody to look at something for you. I, mean, I was just like, about to say. No, I mean, there's no shame in that game. I mean, like everybody's needs help. And I have to say that you get so myopic and looking at the stuff that you've written yourself, that it's really hard to see the mistakes or you spell the same word wrong all the time. So it doesn't look wrong to you. Like you've been doing it since you were eight years old. Like it's just, you spell it that way. Like yeah. it's wrong. So, you know, you need somebody else to kind of, pluck those things out for you and kind of tell you what, or if some like legibility is really important. Like what if somebody can't see something like you think it's fine, but then somebody's like, you know, no, I mean, like, I, I don't know what you're trying getting at. So I think that having a second opinion, a third opinion about things like is always really helpful. But yes, the tip for having your materials, your application materials ready, you know, ahead of time and having done all that stuff does save a lot of um, anxiety when, when that perfect job comes along that you want to apply. I think it's so interesting that you guys are both saying the same things, but you're focusing on different aspects of the industry. But basically, it's outlining the same thing. Do you, are you finding that like social media presence and like LinkedIn presence, all of that kind of stuff can affect your job prospects? Like, are people looking at that? Like if it's just on a general, like what you're doing there, if you're acting too crazy or if it's like a more formal presence, are people interested in what people's social media presences are? I mean, it's interesting because I think that I've had conversations with people that say that I should be looking on social media more, but I have, but it hasn't really played into any job searches that I've been involved with. Um, where it's been a negative blowback. Um, but yeah, I mean, anything and everything that you do in the public eye is a reflection of you and can be used to either be something that's a proponent for what you do. I mean, a lot of people's social media is great because it talks about the things that they're involved in and the things that, the positive things that they do in their free time or their professional lives, right? So there's a lot of extracurriculars I think that people do 
um, that get filtered through social media. So it can be a positive thing as much as it could be somebody actually, you know, this person was behaving inappropriately at this party. Yeah. I would love to know what you've been reading, watching, writing, listening to this week. I have been wanting to get back in touch with my spiritual side, my intuitive side. And I started taking some tarot classes, (gasps) health of intuition. So that is something. So this week's homework was that you needed to actually separate out the, the grand arcana and, you know, pull a card every day and study the card at the beginning of the day for its imagery. And at the end of the day, really think back about like how that card could have affected your day or how it could, how you could interpret that card given the way that the day unfolded. So I've been doing that for a week and I've been doing tarot for 20 years, but it's just kind of, I don't do spreads for other people. I just kind of like pull cards and things like that. And uh, so it's a nice, um, it's nice to do that. And then how tarot um, intersects with astrology. So um, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Are you guys into tarot and astrology? Yes. Uh, I don't know tarot very much, but astrology, I know a little bit more. No, I mean, like, what I think is really weird about tarot is that it's usually not so much predictive as much as it is just a reflection of what it is that's going on with you at that very moment. Like, if you, if your mood changes, like, you pick a completely different, you could pick a completely different kind of spread. Obviously, I'm not trying to say that it's not predictive, but, like, but I find that it's so interesting how it's really a complete emotional reflection of you yeah. at a very specific moment in time. And, uh, yes, that's they cool. I'm very excited that you're doing that because I like love it. Also, I hear that a lot of cool things are happening in astrology right now that like, haven't happened in like a really long time. And like, I can't keep up because I'm a cancer and I just want to be at home. Um, but the, like all of the different suns and moons and all of these things, it's like, this hasn't happened since like 1789. And it's yeah. like, my friend Dana calls me like twice a week. She's like, are you paying attention? And I'm like, no, but I'm glad you are. And she just goes off about how crazy all this stuff is. It's awesome. It's Erica's making fun of me. That's <laughs> just so funny. <laughs> but it's awesome. I love that. Well, it's a reflection of our time, right? I mean, like, think about all the crazy things that are happening in our world. I mean, like, there's unprecedented stuff happening every single day. Yeah. You know, and so that's just, I like to say that it's because we just went through a millennial change. You know, we're still just 20 years into right? a new millennial. That is not very that. young. It's not a decade change. It's not a centennial change. It's a millennial change. And oh. so that's why we're actually having all this upheaval right now. Because we need to do things new. So the old things need to die. I love that. Kill them. Kill them all. <laughs> Can't uh, make anything have, new. Thank you so much for joining us. Will you please tell our wonderful listeners where to find you on the internet? Uh, my website is merkinco.com. That's M-U-R-K-A-N-D-C-O.com. And I live on LinkedIn. Or you can find me either under Sarah Marquette or Murphy Cup. <laughs>
and I'll link all of those in the blurbies. And thank you so much. It has been wonderful. Just such a treat. I can't even tell you. Uh, until next time. Thank Bye. you. Bye. 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 Bye.